You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 509 for February 12th, 2020. I know that I said last week it was episode 509, but it wasn't. It was 508. But this week, I'm pretty sure it is, in fact, episode 509. My guest this week is vibraphonist Chris Dingman. My dream is to make 2020 the year that the jazz session becomes financially sustainable and my main occupation. After nearly 13 years and more than 500 episodes, I think it's time. Will you help me? Please become a member today for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. If you can't afford it, I totally get that. But my guess is that almost all of you probably can and just don't do it. So, you know, make the other choice and become a member today. Thanks. Vibraphonist Chris Dingman's latest album is called Embrace. and welcome to the jazz session thanks so much for having me jason the new album which you've just announced and which comes out on march 6th so folks will be getting some sneak peeks of the music on this show is called embrace it's stripped down in the sense of instrumentation but i don't think it's stripped down at all in the sense of emotion or compositional interest or uh in, in any other way i mean it's just a it's really i think just a beautiful and an incredibly fully realized record. So I guess I'll just start off with a compliment and say I, I really, really like it. I think it's a, a really beautiful piece of music. Thank you so much. It means a lot. Will you talk about the decision to make a trio recording? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a long process of figuring out what kind of, I knew I wanted to have a smaller group. And for a while, while I was working on The Subliminal and The Sublime, which is a sextet album, larger you know, a bit, pretty bit large in scope to big compositional projects. Found myself wanting to have a smaller, more pared down thing. And at first, I was thinking of something a little more unconventional, like a trumpet and vibes and percussion or something like that, which I still may do at some point. And so I started writing pieces with that in mind. And then 
over the course of a couple years, started getting into different approaches on the vibraphone and uh, checking out a lot of different kinds of music, and especially was getting really into chora music. And so I was trying to play. Chora is such a beautiful instrument, one of my favorites, and I love the music, the, the traditions of the um, griot musicians who play it. But the chora plays two or three parts at the same time, um, which on vibraphone is pretty difficult to do. So I was trying to find different ways of doing that and um, sometimes failing, sometimes somewhat succeeding. And over the course of figuring that out and writing more pieces, it just became clear to do a trio with bass and drums and um, have the focus be on the vibraphone. It seems like the success of this record is due, well, not due to, but it's, <laughs> it's certainly helped by the incredible people who are joining you on it, because obviously when there's only three of you, the other two are going to both play enormous roles. So will you talk about who you chose to be on this record with you? playing with Linda, Linda Mehano for quite a while now, since 2012 or 13. And so she was like an obvious person to, to call and ask to play. And I had a good time playing with her and a few other drummers. And it was actually a kind of a unintentional gig where a drummer had to, at the last minute, um, had a family emergency and had to leave and or had to leave town and I had to ask a different drummer. And so that drummer ended up being Tim. Kuiper, who ended up on the record, and uh, I really loved the interplay between Linda and Tim. Uh, the band seemed to have a different lift to it, and Tim's um, coming from a lot of different, he plays a lot of different kinds of, and um, he's played with John Zorn, he's played with Modest Yahoo, <laughs> and Biofar uh, Couture, and he has a strong background playing with Malian musicians, um, so we had sort of a shared um, set of inspiration, um, so that, that was a, a nice... Uh, plus to having him in the group. That's how it came together. And you can really hear that. I mean, this to me, although, you know, it's a, a trio with three instruments that have very different timbres and work in different sound worlds, I think in a lot of the time, it really sounds like one person playing some instrument we've never heard of before because they <laughs> they both really contribute. I mean, one of the, th the things about the nature of the instrument you play is that the the melodies and rhythms are so intertwined because you are both a uh, chordal rhythmic and melodic instrument all at the same time. And then you've got these two who you can tell are just, 
I mean, just so intensely connected to what's happening musically. And so there are times mm-hmm. when, you know, Linda is like extending the sound of the vibraphone on her, on the bass mm-hmm. and times when Tim is doing the same thing. It just, the way it all blends together, it just, it really struck me from the very first listen. Thank you. Yeah, that's something that I value highly in, in music and like when I hear it in other groups and try to cultivate that. But I think ultimately, you know, asking the right people <laughs> and just sort of letting them be free to do what they what they feel seems to really lead to that. And uh, thanks for, for noticing that and appreciating it. <laughs> I wanted to add one more thing about how the album came together, which um, it probably wouldn't have happened <laughs> if it hadn't been for my good friend Keith Whitty, who produced the album. And there was a performance that I did with him and Tim. And after we played together uh, for a few, well, for a while, he, he would check in and say, when are we recording your album? And, you know, I felt like I wasn't ready. I didn't, you know, I wasn't sure. And it was his positive pressure kind of that, that led to recording it. And, and he helped through the whole process of um, recording and, and mixing and he you know he produced the record so it was really nice to have him there and have someone to bounce all the ideas off of um get a sense of how it was going to come together in the press materials for this record uh, and so i'm i'm feeling comfortable to ask you about this although we can we can not talk about it but right at the top it mm-hmm. says that this album not only did it come about through these different musical experiences you were having and exposure you were having but from a time of of real change and and loss and emotional challenge and i wonder if you feel like saying anything about that sure i think yeah there are two things <laughs> in the course of writing the music i was doing a fair amount of soul searching trying to find my i think as musicians in jazz especially tend to do uh we're all on a bit of a mission trying to find our our way <laughs> find what makes us us and that process can involve digging up a lot of things that humans don't want to look at typically. <laughs> and <clears throat> for me, uh, for whatever reason, or probably for some reasons, I tend to, well, I gravitated toward meditation. So I, I was practicing, I've been practicing that for a while. And uh, there was one retreat in particular where I was grappling with a lot of things and kind of trying to feel, trying to figure out why I was playing music why am I doing this thing that's so hard? <laughs> and uh, I remember getting off of leaving the retreat and taking a train ride home. And I got on the train and there was a, a musician got on the train a few stops later on the Amtrak train and she had a violin and she sat down next to me and we just started talking. And uh, it turned out she was going through a pretty intense time. Like her mother was at stage four cancer and um, she, you know, had young children and at one point she played me some music or we were talking about we were talking about music um and why why people play and she had this beautiful way of describing what she felt like why do people play music you know and she made the analogy to to nature and to animals and she said you know well why does a bird sing a song you know why does why do these animals have their calls you know and humans our call is music and i loved that and um, later she played me uh, she played me some music just to listen to and I was so moved by what I heard that I felt just really reinvigorated it's funny I got off the train and 
the train kept going and that was the last time I saw that person. The person had a really big impact on me and I, I don't even, actually don't remember what her name was. <laughs> and it was shortly after that, that I started writing a lot of the music for this album. And in the course of recording and producing it, some family hardship happened. My, my father got sick and ended up passing away in 2018. And so the album was produced kind of during this really rocky time in my life. Um, but as Rio Sakiri told me, if the Jazz Gallery, a lot of beauty comes out of pain and difficulty. And um, that's the beauty of music, something that we can tap into that can heal us and hold us through really difficult times. And I've definitely found that to be the case um, with this record and some other projects I've been working on lately. As someone who I'm a, a Buddhist and um, and so uh, have been meditating, you know, for most of my adult life, and the the story of you getting off the retreat and onto a train and then having that experience, I mean, it it strikes me that the retreat was almost like preparation for the train ride, and uh, who knows if you would have had that same experience if you hadn't just been doing what you were doing. Um, Absolutely. There is something about just spending time inside yourself that you I don't think you can replicate that particular experience with anything else. I and I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to meditate, although I sure sure wouldn't hurt. But I do think that there is there is something about the brain to me at least never gets quiet. I mean in in decades I've never had one of those moments where I'm like, "Oh yeah, everything's really quieting right down." But the things that pop up while I'm doing it, I think can often point to the stuff that I'm not dealing with the rest of the time. And I find mm. it very useful, you know, for that reason. And it, mm. it sounds like in your experience, it, it, it was, you know, preparing you to, to re-engage with, you know, what's at the core of who you are, which seems very much like music is the answer to that question. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I've had really similar experiences that, you know, yeah, different kinds of things come up and you're kind of weeding through this stuff. And then at the end, especially of a long retreat, things have changed and, and yeah, you can interact with the world differently. You can observe things a little differently and it gives you this space to make a few, make, you know, subtle changes that add up to a lot over time. And yeah, the train ride was, uh, yeah, revealing of what those changes were at the time. And, and yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know. I remember if, thinking at the time, like, hey, why don't I talk to this person? Which, you know, oftentimes on a train, I'm not inclined to just strike up a conversation next, with the person next to me, unless they kind of just do it already. So it was, yeah, it was out of character for me, but um, in a really good way and yeah, it was really impactful. Mm-hmm. 
The Jazz Session really is the first and oldest jazz interview podcast. It started back when very few people knew what a podcast was, and most folks thought you needed an iPod to listen to one. Nearly 13 years later, the show is still going strong, but I'd like to be able to do so much more with the Jazz Session. More in-person interviews, more festival coverage, more travel, and that's possible only if you decide that you value this show enough to support it. If you do, go to thejazzsession.com and become a member for $5 or $10 a month. You'll get bonus episodes, early access to every show, and more. Thanks for being here all these years. Please become part of the next 13 years by becoming a member. Jazz records tend to be made very unlike rock and pop records where, you know, it's not a six-month process in the studio every day. It's usually like a six-hour process in the studio or, a, you know, <laughs> two days or three days. When so much of this music comes out of introspection, how do you make space in the studio session to to reconnect with the feelings that led to this music? Because obviously it's one thing to have connection to those feelings when you're writing it. But, you know, to some degree, you also want to be able to connect to that same part of yourself when you're actually performing it and you're at the same time trying to get a good take and there's, you know, only so many hours and so on and so forth. How did you kind of navigate all of that, all of the the conflicting emotions and requirements when you were actually making this record? Yeah, it's a really good question and good point. It's jazz records are often just a, a snapshot of of a larger process. And I think a lot of it comes from the preparation process and performing the music live, uh, which I did for about a year before recording, or maybe even longer. And that regular development of the music gets reflected in the in the recording. So by the time you get to the studio, you just kind of do what comes naturally and do it enough few takes. And that's kind of, that's going to be a representation of where the music's at and where it's come from. And uh, I think a lot of that, the tunes have to find themselves when they're being played by others. And there's definitely a process of communicating what the tune is about to the musicians. Sometimes they just pick it up right away. And sometimes there's, you know, just to talk about it or work through it musically. But by the time we were in the studio, which we did, just one day and uh, we actually recorded it to tape so it was an interesting process uh 
um, the way we did it, we recorded for 15 minutes and then we'd spend 15 minutes with the music getting bounced to Pro Tools and to, to a digital format. So we had this forced break to kind of decompress. I think that was actually helpful. I recall that the day of the session, the first, it started off kind of slow and we ended up being there pretty late. The first few hours, it took a little while to get into some kind of flow with it for me personally. Um, and that's where having a producer was really invaluable. Someone who could be a little bit more objective about the process and guide us was really, really helpful. Especially for me, other records I've done, I was able to be a bit more of a producer role while playing uh, because it was a larger group. But with me being like the main voice and playing all the parts and everything, uh, it's a little harder to do, harder to be objective about it. So, yeah, that was that was some of the process. And I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, I didn't feel like everything was, you know, the best version of what I had done it ever. But it was a pretty good representation of where things had been at for the past year. And I think that that's um, that's enough. <laughs> I think it, it gets at what the core of the, the music's about. When you first sent me this record and said, hey, would you be interested in, in talking about this? I had only listened to about the first two minutes when I responded and said yes, because the first two minutes was all I needed to know that unless there was a dramatic change <laughs> in the quality of the rest <laughs> of the album, that I was pretty comfortable that it was going to be good. And it opens with a piece called Inner Child that is inspired uh, in some fashion by Bobby Hutcherson who had passed away shortly before um, it was recorded. And I have to say that, you know, of course, just in the nature of being a, a jazz fan, I've, I've listened to some Bobby Hutcherson, but I don't think I know as much as I need to know by any stretch of the imagination. And so I'm curious if, if you'd be willing to say something about him and, and why he was inspiring and, and influential for you. Yeah. I remember when I first got into vibraphone, which was when I was about 18, uh, and especially when I turned about the age of 20, I got, I became a vibraphonist. I was before that in my mind, a drummer. And around that time is when I got introduced to Bobby's playing and music. I had heard him before that, but wasn't that familiar with his records. And I was immediately drawn to it. There was this sparkle to his playing and his music that I loved. Something really genuine about it, something really it really resonated with me and then i went to go see him play and it all became totally clear why because he's just this magnetic person who is totally comfortable and free with who he is and very in the moment and when i later got a chance to talk with him a couple times um he actually came to the college where i was at and uh, my vibraphone teacher jay hogard kind of helped bring him there and it, you know it became clear he was one of the funniest people that i had ever encountered so hilarious and so tapped into this mirth and humor and joy of existing and part of that joy i think there's this and i've heard herbie hancock talk about this too and, and wayne shorter they talk about this childlike quality to your approach and for that matter i feel like i've heard some classical musicians talk about that it's playing you know you're, play, you're playing like a child like in the sandbox but you know just happen to be also creating this genius stuff but um in the case of all, all the people i just mentioned bobby definitely had that and the way that he approached music and the way he approached life was so inspirational and influential for me especially during that time and when he passed away i just felt the gravity of that 
impact that he had on me. And um, that in combination with all the other things I was grappling with and thinking about, I think came through in this piece. It was the first piece I wrote of this music. And it was the first piece I wrote when I came back from that train ride that I mentioned. And so it was all this stuff was really fresh in my mind. And I, I remember feeling very connected with the music that it was doing something for me and something was coming through. Uh, and it was only later that I connected that with Bobby. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it was his passing and his essence that went into that. release there's a quote that says i only met bobby a handful of times but when he passed away i felt a lot of grief that i fully didn't didn't fully understand right away and i was uh, thinking about that um recently neil peart from the drummer from the band rush died and they were Mm. super important to me when i was uh you know a teenager kind of just getting exposed to to rock music and i listened to rush all the time and although i wasn't I wouldn't say at the level of, you know, the, the person who went to every single tour and kind of in the in the super fan level, they were very important to me. And when he died that night, I watched, or when we found out that he had died, which was several days after it actually happened, I watched uh, Time Stand Still, a, a documentary about Rush and Rush fans. And at the end, I just started just crying really hard. And my uh, my you know partner came over and kind of put their arms around me and. I was thinking about why I was feeling that way. And there's just something about people whose music is not only enjoyable to us, but I think helps create part of who we are. I mean, there's there are times in your life where the music that you're listening to, if music is as important you know, to, to you as it is to the people who are on this show, there is a time, I think, and it can happen multiple times throughout your life where you're in this period of kind of personal growth and expansion and discovery. And the music that you're hearing at that time is, is part of that. And so it, it's more than just like, you know, the summer banger that was on the radio or whatever it, it's part uh, becomes, I think part of like the, your DNA and your psychological profile. And so, I mean, I never met Neil Peart ever. And, uh, you know, I've never, I've never had any special access to the band Rush or anything. I didn't know him yeah. any better than any other person who ever heard the the records. But there was just something about the passing of this person who at a time in my life when I was both figuring myself, starting to figure myself out and starting to determine what kind of music I wanted to listen to, that he was a big part of that. And it, when he died, it was a real loss, even though... You know, obviously, he wasn't 
part of my circle or anything like that. But it really it did matter. And I was thinking about that when I read this quote, you know, from you about Bobby that you don't have to have had Sunday dinners at his house for 20 years for him to have, you know, worked his way like deep down inside you and his, you know, his music to have gotten there. You don't have to have met him at all. As it turns out, you you did know him some. But um, I just think, you know, musicians can get into us in a way that is just incredibly deep and powerful. Absolutely. And in, ca- in the case of, but thank you for that beautiful take on the impact of music uh, and musicians on us. I, I mean, I think that really captures a lot of uh, what it's all about and um, totally agree in the case of, of Bobby. Uh, for me, similar to what you're talking about is that a time in my life that was very formative and as a as a jazz musician trying to find my own way you know that was it Clark Terry and of course a lot of other people you know talk talked about this way of of learning but where you start by imitating and then you end up innovating later on and so Bobby was definitely that for me the person that I imitated the most and got inside of his music and his way of approaching the instrument and his sound and in the course of that yeah, I actually did my undergraduate thesis on Bobby, <laughs> and uh, in the course of that, learned a lot about who he was as a, as a person. And I think naturally, because that's just the music as his whole philosophy is music is an extension of who you are and kind of a diary of who you are. And um, I think I remember him saying in some interviews, "Life comes first, and the music follows that." And uh, that's something that I took took away from him and learned from him too. So yeah, there's a lot of deep lessons there. And even though I didn't know him all that well, I only met him a handful of times. Um, he had a, a strong impact on my life. That Charlie Parker quote, something like, if you don't live it, it won't come out of your horn. That mm. just, <laughs> that feels more and more appropriate the older, <laughs> the older I get. Uh, that, mm. you know, it's just the more life experience I obtain the more I realize uh, the depth of things that I listened to before or looked at before or experienced mm-hmm. before and just just didn't have the tools you know to to really deal with um, which is not to say I mean like you know I I first heard John Coltrane's music when I was a teenager and I, I didn't know I didn't have anywhere near the amount of knowledge about the music that I have now. And I'm sure I don't have anywhere near the knowledge about music that, for example, you have. But yet, I think it was really important to hear that music then. It's not It's not just about having the frame of reference to deal with things. I mean, sometimes hearing that stuff is what opens you up and re- makes you realize, oh, I, maybe I could figure some more stuff out. But I, I do notice, like, you know, I go back and read things that I read when I was a teenager or read when I was in my early 20s and now I'm in my mid 40s. Or I see, a, you know, a movie that I saw 20 years ago and now I look at it and I was like, oh, my God, I didn't realize this was really about this thing. Mm. And that's kind of mm-hmm. great in a way. I mean, you get to keep revisiting, you know, whether it's, you know, your your own music or in my case, my own writing sometimes. And I, I see all these things. I, I can kind of see myself learning and I've. I get to revisit things and discover new things about them, which I think is, that's kind of a cool part of, of continuing to age and continuing to have experiences is that you can, you can kind of keep revisiting these people who were touchstones in your life. And there's, there's always more to discover there, which is, which is pretty inspiring. I think that's a a testament to the depth of the artistry of the people we're talking about too, is that you could come back to it and then realize that there's this whole other level to it 
<clears throat> and and yeah, the learning process. You can look back on things and then realize that there was a whole other lesson to take away from something that happened. What you were talking about made me think of this time with uh, when I was in the Thelonious Monk Institute, now called the Herbie Hancock Institute, with Terrence Blanchard, and <laughs> he was he was saying he was relating to me about when he was young and he was studying with somebody, or I can't remember if he was with in someone's band and learning something. And he was saying, they must have thought I was a real knucklehead. (laughs) And I realized like 10 years later that what he was telling me was that I was being a knucklehead. (laughs) Basically, you know, that I like, that's the position I was in at the time, which I didn't even fully comprehend. It was just, it was a really funny moment when I realized, oh my God, he (laughs) he was like kind of relating this whole learning process to me in a way that um, I didn't even fully absorb <laughs> until like 10 years later. And um, Terrence had a huge impact and a great, great person to be around during that time. Terrence Blanchard as a writer of Buddhist koans, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It takes a long time to think about these stories before uh, you realize they're about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fabulous. Let's take one more break to thank the folks who make the jazz session possible, starting with the members who support it, and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music, and Dave Rabel for the logo. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the jazz session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at thejazzsession. Each weekday at 1 p.m., I'm posting photos from the 20-plus years of interviews and shows that I've been to. Take a second right now to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, poetry, and more, subscribe to my newsletter. It comes out every two weeks on Wednesday. You can go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Now back to the show. As uh, we mentioned at the top of the show, this album comes out on March 6th. And then I know that a couple months after that, there's going to be an album release show. Uh, Will you give us the details on that in as far as you know them? Yes, it is May 14th. That's a Thursday. And it's at the Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning in Jamaica, Queens. It's a great uh, performing arts center that's done a lot of really interesting things over the past few years. I know this as we're talking, this record hasn't even come out yet, but it is almost always the case in my experience that the people I'm talking to are already thinking about what else to be working on. Is that the case with you? Are you 
starting to think about what other projects you might get into? Maybe a step ahead of you on that one. Um, <laughs> and I laugh because it's been this interesting couple years since but this album was actually recorded in 2017. So yes, I've been working on some other music, mostly solo music. And one of the things is through my subscriber list, my email list, I've been releasing a track each month of solo music. And you can subscribe by going to my website, www.chrisdingman.com. There's a sign-up form, and I share a track. And recently, uh, the list actually asked them to vote on a set of tracks and pick one to release publicly. So I actually just released a single of one of those. It's called Visitors. It's out now. And I'll be doing more of that. I have a project of solo music that I recorded for my father during his time in hospice care. And that music is an extended amount of solo vibraphone music. It's about five hours worth of music, and it will be getting released later this year, as well as some um, collaborations with hospice and palliative care centers. Um, So that's kind of a different thing happening. And then I've also been uh, playing and working on music with a quartet that is with a vocalist, uh, original text and some poetry as well, settings of Rumi poetry. And that's with a great young vocalist named Miriam El Hodgley and Ike Sturm on bass and Zanetta Sykes on percussion. And so we've been playing around and definitely we'll, re- we'll be recording at some point. Wow, I mean, Rumi That's plus on the right Chris now. Dingman, I'm yeah. I'm totally down. So uh, <laughs> sign me up. I'm I'm already on the hook for that one. The new album is called Embrace. It comes out on March 6th of the year 2020. In case you're listening to this far in the future, it's already out and you can get it. My guest has been vibraphonist and composer Chris Dingman. Chris, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for taking the time. And I hope you'll come back and talk about these future projects too. Thanks so much, Jason. Really great to talk to you. And yeah, I'll look forward to our next conversation. If you value what you just heard, become a member for five or ten bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to my guest this week, Chris Dingman. Next week's show features Kim Nazarian from New York Voices. Until next time, support live music whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.